0: Keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 18, excuse me, Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 23. That will be our text this morning, Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. Before I begin, I want to make something clear. We do not know what was in the heart of John the Baptist when he asked the question found in this text. The Bible does not explicitly tell us. The question suggests doubt, and the answer that Jesus gives calls for faith. Now, some have suggested that John asked this question not for his sake, but for the sake of his disciples, that they would believe on Jesus as the Messiah. Others have suggested that this question comes from deep doubt, maybe even despair in the heart of John. Again, it's not my intention this morning to speculate about what was or was not in the heart of John the Baptist when he asked this question. Rather, as we look at this text, I want us to focus on a biblical response to doubt in our own hearts and lives, as we apply what is clearly taught in this text. And so for our title this morning, will be Doubt and Deliverance. Doubt and Deliverance. In this passage, we're told of a question John the Baptist asked Jesus, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And this question might surprise us. Didn't Jesus, or excuse me, didn't John say of Jesus in Luke one, or excuse me, in John one twenty nine, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. John baptized Jesus. And on that occasion the Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon Jesus, and the Father proclaimed from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Hadn't John the Baptist heard of the preaching and teaching and miracle-working ministry of Jesus? John had said, he must increase, I must decrease. How could John the Baptist ask this question? Are thou he that should come? Or look we for another? It's very important that we carefully consider this question from John the Baptist because all of us struggle with doubt. I may have doubt about the gospel. Is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? Is Jesus the Messiah? Or should I look for someone else? I may doubt God's love and care for me. If I'm suffering, how do I know God cares? When things are hard, where is the love of God for me? I may doubt my forgiveness, my justification. I may doubt the power of the gospel for Christian living. I may be so full and overcome with doubt that I despair even of life itself. If any one of those doubts, or all of those doubts, are true of you this morning, I want to encourage you with this. You are not alone. The temptation to doubt is a part of every Christian's warfare. In our text this morning, we see doubt, but we also see deliverance. Do not despair, Christian. Whatever doubt you may be struggling with, there is a way of deliverance, and we will see that from our text this morning. In the promises of Jesus Christ, we have deliverance from every doubt. Let's open up with prayer. Lord, as we consider this passage and the deep themes that are found here, Lord, I pray that you would help us, that our hearts would be soft and open to the working of the Holy Spirit, and that you would teach us to love what you love and to hate what you hate, to be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, first we see the question. The question. In verse 18 we read, The disciples of John showed him these things. Just as Jesus had disciples, so did John the Baptist. This was the system of higher education in Israel at that time. If you wanted to devote yourself to religious learning, you would find a rabbi, a teacher, and then you would follow them around. You would be their follower, their disciple. And the disciples of John the Baptist brought this news about Jesus to John, brought news of these things to him. Well, what things? What were the disciples of John the Baptist telling him about? They were telling him about the ministry of Jesus. Jesus. Maybe they were telling him about the sermons he preached, as are recorded in Luke chapter 6. The miracles that Jesus performed, like those we've already seen in chapter 7, the incredible healing of the centurion's servant, and the raising of the widow's son from the dead. People throughout all Judea and Galilee and the surrounding areas were talking about Jesus, and it was no different with the disciples of John the Baptist. They told John about these things. And if this verse was all that we had, verse 18 then we might assume that John's response to this news would be very positive. Maybe he would be rejoicing, praising God for sending the Messiah. Wonder in awe that God had used him as the humble forerunner for the Messiah. We don't have to speculate. We know how John responded to this news about Jesus. And we read John's question first in verse 19. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And then verse 20 tells us that these men went to Jesus and repeated that question. Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Why did John ask this question? I want to remind you of some things that you know about John the Baptist, or you probably know about John the Baptist, but you may have never considered in connection with this question. First, John the Baptist faced great personal trials and suffering. When John asked this question, he was in prison. In Luke 3.19, we're told that John had boldly rebuked Herod for his unlawful marriage to Herodias. Herodias was Herod's niece and also the wife of Herod's brother, Philip. Philip. There was much wrong with this situation, and John reproved Herod for this marriage. We're also told that he reproved Herod for other evil deeds he had done. And this was a good thing. John the Baptist stood for righteousness, and he was unafraid to call people to repentance. We see this as one of the hallmarks of his ministry. And even if those people had political power to persecute him, John was going to stand for righteousness' sake. And he was persecuted for it. Herod did have political power to persecute him, and that's exactly what happened. Luke 3.20 tells us that Herod put John in prison. Prisons are hard places today, much worse even in the first century. And we know that John was never set free. He sat in Herod's prison until he was beheaded at the request of Herodias' daughter. Now, of course, at this time, John the Baptist didn't know that would be his end. He didn't know what would happen to him. He didn't know what the future held. All he knew was that he had been faithful to stand for righteousness, and now he was suffering. How was that fair? Isn't God pleased with righteousness? Wasn't John the Baptist a prophet ordained by God? He had done good. He had done what God had told him to do, and now he was suffering for it. I will not presume to speak on John's behalf, but I will speak for myself. I know from personal experience, and I believe you know from personal experience, that when suffering comes into our lives, we are tempted to doubt God. Why did the cancer come back? Why can't I have a child? Why did I lose my job? Why did my loved one die? On and on we could go with examples. And we understand from Scripture that we live in a sin-cursed world where suffering happens all the time. But when it's on our plate, when we are suffering, one of the first and greatest temptations we will face is doubt. Remember what Job's wife said to him. Job, look at this suffering. Just curse God and die. We'll be tempted to doubt God, to doubt His goodness, to doubt His care for us. And this temptation can be magnified when, like John the Baptist, we suffer for righteousness' sake, when we do good and suffer for it. That can be hard. Doesn't God command us to do good, to stand for righteousness? Where is God's care for us? And when we suffer, we can be tempted to doubt. John the Baptist, he was suffering. Second, John the Baptist had preached a message of judgment. What had John the Baptist said about Jesus and his ministry. Listen to these quotes from John's preaching. In Luke 3, 7, he said, flee from the wrath to come. In Luke three nineteen, he said, and now also the axe is laid unto the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. In Luke 3, 16 and 17, he said, I indeed baptize you with water. But one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. And he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. We see a theme. Judgment is coming. Repent. The Messiah who will judge the earth is coming. And this is what his ministry will be like. Wrath. Wrath fire, purging, judgment. Now John also called Jesus the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. I'm not suggesting that John only preached fiery judgment. That was certainly, though, a strong theme in John's message. Now put yourself in the shoes of John the Baptist. Here is the prophetic ministry you were given by God that you faithfully delivered. A message that had a strong theme of wrath, And judgment, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, the one that you preached about, the one for whom you had prepared the way. Now you are in prison and your disciples come to you and they tell you about the ministry of Jesus. And what do you hear? Do you hear a fiery judgment? Do you hear how Jesus is first purging Israel and then the world? No. You hear of a meek and lowly servant. You hear of Jesus performing miracles of mercy. He's preaching to great crowds, but when those crowds try to put him in a position of power as a political leader, he will not let them. You look for the Lion of Judah, and you see a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. The ministry of Jesus may not have been what John expected, and this may have tempted him to doubt. And again, I won't presume to speak on behalf of John the Baptist, but I can speak for us. When God doesn't do what we want Him to do or what we expect Him to do or what we think we have a biblical warrant to believe He will do. When God doesn't do what we expect, one of the greatest temptations we will face is doubt. Why didn't God do this? And what does that mean about the other expectations I have of Him? When God doesn't meet our expectations, we're tempted to doubt. And this may have been the case for John the Baptist. Finally, John... The Baptist was a man of his time. A man of his time. If you read the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, without the New Testament, it's very difficult to imagine the ministry of the Messiah separated from politics. In Genesis 49.10, we read this prophecy. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. A messianic prophecy. First Chronicles 17, in that passage, God promised David that he would establish his throne in Israel forever. Establish his throne forever. Sounds political. Referring to the Messiah, Isaiah 9-7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And from these prophecies, and many, many more like them in the Old Testament, there was an expectation that God would restore David's throne with an anointed king who would rule and reign over the Jewish people and spread that influence through the world. They were looking for a political leader. Now, I'm not suggesting that John the Baptist was only interested in a political Messiah. In fact, from his preaching, we know that that was not the case. He warned the people of sin and judgment and called them to repentance. But John was a man of his time in this way. All John knew was the revelation that God personally gave him as part of his ministry as a prophet and what was given in the Old Testament prophecies. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. There, Peter, he's writing about the way of salvation. And he makes this comment. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you Searching what or manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So there Peter is talking about salvation. And he says, even the Old Testament prophets who prophesied of the Messiah, they didn't fully understand God's redemptive plan. They inquired. They searched diligently. They prophesied faithfully. They looked forward in faith to the deliverance that God had promised. But they did not live in the fulfillment of these things. All they had was the revelation God had given them up to that point. We live truly in a privileged time. Because we live in the fulfillment of Christ's saving, redeeming work. And what a blessing that is. That's a blessing that John the Baptist did not have. And because of the time in which John lived, he lived and ministered before Jesus completed his work of redemption. He may have been tempted to doubt when he heard of Jesus' apolitical ministry, a ministry that was divorced from the politics of that time. And again, I will not presume to speak on behalf of John the Baptist, but I can speak for us. We must be very careful not to allow the time and culture in which we live to determine our view of God and Scripture. Like John the Baptist, we are people of our time. We live when we live, and we cannot change that. And some people say, oh, if, I, if I'd only lived back then. That time's past. We live when we live. We can't change when we live, but we must remember that the work of God transcends our time in history and the culture in which we live. And if we put the expectations of our time and our culture upon the ministry of Jesus Christ, upon the gospel, we will distort the gospel in some way. It can lead us to doubt. That may have been the case with John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, he sent two of his disciples to Jesus with this question. Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? We're not told why John asked this question. Maybe he was struggling with his circumstances, the suffering that he faced. Maybe he was struggling because of the expectations he had for Jesus. Maybe he was struggling to understand the ministry of Jesus. These are all certainly areas where we can struggle and where we can be tempted to doubt. And the disciples of John the Baptist, they went to Jesus. And they asked Jesus this question that John had given them, "Art thou he that should come, or look we for another?" Now let's consider what Jesus was doing when he was asked this question. In verse 21, we see the power of Jesus demonstrated. Luke 7:21, and in that same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind, he gave sight. It appears that Jesus did not immediately answer this question. This question was brought to Jesus, but he did not give an immediate answer. Or at the very least, Jesus answered this question in the context of the work that he was doing. And what was that work? He was working miracles of healing and deliverance. Again, in that same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind... He gave sight. Jesus was doing these miracles when this question was brought to him. And the disciples of John the Baptist were present and witnessed these miracles. And as always, these miracles testified of the nature and power of Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't doing miracles for miracles' sake. They, they testified of his nature and of his power. They showed that his power came from God. They were a testimony to the power and approval of God upon his ministry and they were an overwhelming evidence that left men who witnessed them without excuse for their unbelief. This is what Peter preached in Acts 2, verse 22. He said, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles And wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Miracles, wonders, signs, approved of God, as ye know. And yet, we know that many did not believe. Many who witnessed the miracles of Jesus, who saw them happen, did not believe. And from a distance, as we look back on this account, on the account of Jesus and his ministry and the miracles he performed, we read about these miracles and about the unbelief of many who witnessed them, and we think, well, there must have still been room for doubt. Maybe there was some sort of natural explanation for the miracles Jesus performed. No. The unbelief was not there because there was room for doubt. The unbelief was there because men are hardened in their sin. And even when faced with overwhelming physical evidence right before their eyes, men are so blinded and so hardened in their sin that they will not believe. And we learned something here about the nature of man Does man have a free will? Yes. We make choices. We're responsible before God for the choices that we make. Those choices are not forced. We're free to do as we choose. And any person who has ever made any choice, who's ever exercised their will in any way, they did what they wanted to do. This is the nature of the human will. We follow the strongest inclination that we have in every given situation. Now, what does the Bible say is the ruling power in the heart of man? Sin. Sin. Jeremiah 17, 9, Ephesians 2, 1, Colossians 2, 13, Romans 5, 12 through 17, Romans 6, 6 through 14. On and on and on we could go. And sin manifests itself in the heart of man in different ways. It appears to different degrees, different people, in different places. It can even superficially appear to be righteousness, just like Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 6. It can look like Righteousness. But when you strip it down and you get to the core, what you find in the heart of every man is the ruling and corrupting power of sin. And even with God incarnate, Jesus Christ, working miracles before their very eyes, man still did what he was most inclined to do. He chose sin and rejected righteousness. It takes the grace of God to change the inclination of our hearts from sin to righteousness. And this is that miraculous, life-giving power that Paul was talking about in Ephesians 1, verses 19 and 20. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power? What mighty power? That mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. The same power that raised Christ from the dead works salvation in us. turned us from being hardened in our sin to being open and receptive to the gospel. That's a work only God can do. And we thank Him for it. Those who saw the miracles and the ministry of Jesus and responded in faith did so by God's grace. And those who saw the miracles and ministry of Jesus and did not believe did so because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. This is what Jesus said in John 3, verse 19. The miracles Jesus performed were proof of his nature and his power. Now, when you and I are struggling with doubt, we must go back to the work of God. But you say, we can't go and see the miracles of Jesus. Neither could John the Baptist. He's locked up in prison. He had to rely on the testimony of others. 2 Peter 1.19 tells us we have a more sure word of testimony greater than even our own eyewitness account. We have the Word of God. We have to go back to the works of God. And we have another privilege that John the Baptist did not have. We know the completed work of Jesus Christ as Redeemer. When you're tempted to doubt, or when you're deep in the mire of doubt itself, Go back to the cross of Jesus Christ and remember the work of God completed on your behalf there. The work of Jesus Christ is our bulwark against doubt. Rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Are you tempted to doubt because of your current circumstances? Look again to the cross of Jesus Christ. There the question of God's love for you, God's care for you, was eternally settled. Does God love you? Does God care? Don't look to your present circumstances for the answer. Look to the only begotten Son of God, pierced for you. God's love for you was settled at Calvary. Amen. Are you tempted to doubt because God is not doing what you want Him to do or what you expect Him to do? Look to the cross of Jesus Christ and be reminded that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. Don't set your expectations on what you want God to do for you, but rest in what God has done for you. Are you tempted to doubt because you are judging the work of God through the lens of your time and culture? 1 Corinthians one twenty one says, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And in verse 25, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The wisdom of the world is no standard by which to judge God. Look to the work Jesus Christ accomplished at Calvary and rest in the wisdom and power of God demonstrated in the work of redemption. Go back to the works of Christ. John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus with this question Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And when they came to Jesus, they found him performing miracles. He cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Now, in one sense, these miracles would have been enough. But in our text, Jesus also answered their question. Look at the answer in verses 22 and 23. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things you have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended." In me. Jesus tells them to go back and to tell John what they had seen and heard. They had seen the miracles Jesus performed, they had heard Jesus preach, and now Jesus tells them to go back and tell John about these things. And notice this list that Jesus gives the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. To the poor the gospel is preached. This list corresponds with messianic prophecies from Isaiah. In Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Jesus didn't tell John's disciples, believe in me because I said so, or tell John to believe in me because I said so. Rather, Jesus performed these miracles, which demonstrated his nature and his power and fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecies, and then he sent John's disciples back to tell John what they had seen and heard and how it aligned with what God had said, with God's Word. Rest in the promises of God's Word. He will keep His Word. He will do what He has promised. No force in creation can stop the hand of the Creator. I want to point something out about one of the prophecies Jesus referenced in this text, Isaiah 61. That's the same passage that Jesus read when He was in the synagogue in Nazareth back in Luke chapter 4. And on that occasion, Jesus read... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the scroll, and he sat down. The very next phrase that's found in Isaiah 61, it's in verse 2 in our Bibles, says, And the day of vengeance of our God. And before Jesus reached that part, he stopped reading. And he closed the book and he sat down. The first time Jesus came, he came as a suffering servant. When he returns, he will come to rule and reign with an iron rod. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him Lord. Jesus is both Savior and Sovereign. Both Comforter and King. Our brother, our friend, Our Lord and our God. We mentioned earlier that John the Baptist in his office as a prophet had warned the people of the judgment of God in connection to the ministry of the Messiah. And that maybe Jesus' meek ministry may have been part of the reason why John asked this question. Art thou he that should come or do we look for another? And Jesus is in the middle of his ministry as Savior. And he points John and his disciples back to the Old Testament Scriptures. And he shows them that his ministry was perfectly consistent with what had been prophesied. And there is more yet to be fulfilled. This is a good reminder for us. Our view is limited. We don't always understand why or how God is working in any given situation. But we can rest assured that he will perfectly accomplish all that he has promised. After alluding to these Old Testament prophecies, Jesus gave one more message to the disciples of John the Baptist. To carry to their master, blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. These are the last words that Jesus would ever give to John. Jesus demonstrated his power, but he made no promise to use his power to relieve John's suffering. Jesus gave John no further explanation of his ministry of as Redeemer. Now imagine this conversation. Here are the disciples of John the Baptist. They return to John the Baptist and they say, we went to Jesus. We saw him work miracles. We heard the gospel he preaches to the poor. He showed us the prophecies he is fulfilling. And then John asks, but what did he say to me? What did Jesus say to John? Blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Jesus encouraged the faith of John the Baptist. And what an encouragement it was. What assurance there was. But Jesus left those prison doors which held John closed. What happened to John the Baptist? Did he fall away? Like so many in the multitude that followed Jesus from time to time, when the going got rough, did John turn back? No. John was a faithful martyr. And Jesus never said anything negative about John the Baptist. In fact, as we will see next week as we continue in Luke 7, Jesus spoke very highly of John the Baptist. And the very last thing that Jesus ever said to John the Baptist was this, Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. There is much that offends the natural man in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 8.14 refers to the Messiah as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And that passage is quoted twice in the New Testament in reference to Jesus. Romans 9.33 and 1 Peter two eight. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, we're told the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. In Jesus' day, as he was walking this earth, as he was ministering, he was despised for his manner of birth, for his perceived place of birth, for his methods of ministry, for his association with sinners, for the doctrines that he preached, for the ministry of redemption that he came to accomplish. Jesus was, and he still is, despised. A pastor from years ago wrote, What drives men to revolt from Christ? It is because he appears with his cross, disfigured and despised and exposed to the reproaches of the world, because he calls us to share in his afflictions, because his glory and majesty, being spiritual, are despised by the world, and in a word, because his doctrine is totally at variance with our senses. We should not be surprised when offenses come, when difficulties come, when we're tempted to doubt. It's part of the Christian's warfare. And as these words of Jesus, first given to encourage John, now come to us. They encourage us as well. Blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. When doubt comes, there's only one place we can go for deliverance. We must go to Jesus Christ. Go back to the works of Jesus. Go back to the words of Jesus. Go back to the promises of Jesus. Only in the person and work of Jesus Christ do we find deliverance. I want to close by reading a selection from one of the most biblically grounded and helpful Christian books ever written, Pilgrim's Progress. And it's an allegory. And in that allegory, the main character, Christian, and his fellow pilgrim, Hopeful, they're walking along the narrow way toward the celestial city. And as they're going along, they they reach a particularly difficult portion of that path. And so they left the narrow way for what looked like an easier road. But on that other road, they were captured by the giant despair who beat them severely and then locked them up in Doubting Castle. And as the days passed, Christian and Hopeful began to despair. And that's where this selection is taken from. On Saturday, about midnight, they began to pray and continued in prayer till almost break of day. Now, a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in this passionate speech. What a fool, quoth he, am I, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said hopeful, that is good news, good brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door whose bolt as he turned the key gave back. The door flew open with ease, and Christian and hopeful both came out. Then he went to the outward door that leads into the castle yard, and with his key opened that door also. After, he went to the iron gate, for that must be open too. But that lock went hard, yet the key did open it. Then they thrust open the gate and made their escape with speed. I titled the sermon, Doubt and Deliverance. Doubt is part of the Christian warfare. You may have struggled with it this week. You may be struggling with it right now. What key can set you free from Doubting Castle? The promises given to you by Jesus Christ. Rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Rest in the promises of Jesus Christ. Find deliverance in Jesus Christ. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we are only too aware of our weakness, of our tendency to fail and to fall away. Lord, to this we are inclined. Lord, our tendency to let so many things derail us, so many things lead us into doubt and despair. Lord, I pray that you would help us to never stray from being anchored in the gospel the person and the work of Jesus Christ. First in salvation, we thank you for it, Lord. And then, as we go out to live the Christian life, may we always return back to the gospel, to your precious word, your precious work, your precious promises. Whenever doubt comes, may we find deliverance there. In, in Jesus' name we pray.